for the residents that's affected. So I said, no, because you can have it free. We're not going to rent it to you. Um, absolutely, what do you need from us? And she said, you know, we just need the building and maybe putting some signs out on the road uh, so people can actually find the rabbit warren that we're in the center of. And I was thinking, I immediately prayed, and, and I said, you know what, we have a brilliant opportunity now to bless our community. It says in the scripture, it's a scripture that God gave me a few uh, years ago when we first started to pastor his church in Jeremiah. It says, seek the welfare of this city, and in its welfare you will find your welfare. Pray for them. And, you know, this is us seeking the welfare of our city in a very small way. So here's what I want you to do. I'd like you to be here at 3 o'clock this afternoon. And you're like, well, what am I going to do? Just smile, welcome, be loving, be kind, show the love and the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ to those people who are going to feel anxious. Uh, they've lost, they don't know what's going to happen with their home. Uh, they're going to feel lost. And they, they, maybe they just need to smile today. And so, just practically though, I think it'd be great. I've already uh, organized free coffee from Starbucks, because uh, I have the contacts. Um, so we're going to have some Starbucks, and, uh, and I just thought maybe we could get some water and some pop and some snacks, and we can set up the bar, and some, a couple of people can serve them at the bar and welcome them as they come in. And, uh, and I'd love for a, a good team of us to be able to do that. Three o'clock this afternoon. It's cloudy outside anyway. Who wants to be, well, it was when I came in, who wants to be out on the lake today when you could be in here serving our community? And you know, can I just tell you, Chris reminded me this morning, Chris Robinson, because he's been around for, I don't know, years, maybe even longer than John Casorso, who knows? Um, he reminded me that on the, one of the very first meetings this church actually had was in 2003, just before, and it was the residents who were about to be evacuated uh, from the, the great fire of 2003. And, uh, and I, can I tell you, that had a profound effect spiritually in the community. It's often in times of dying need that people turn to him who is only able to really and truly meet their needs, which is Jesus Christ. And so let's do that as a church. And so if you are able to come, um, then uh, this afternoon at three, then can you please just, maybe we can just have a little mini meeting uh, straight after the service and we can figure out who could get what and who can do what. And, um, and it might be you're just here for the first part and then I'm happy just to stay for the rest of it. Whatever it looks like, we'll figure it out. Do I get a hearty amen, church? Amen. amen. Great stuff. Okay, Psalm 8. I am quite giddy about preaching this sermon, so you need to buckle up and get ready, because this is a fantastic psalm as we go through our new series in the book of Psalms through summer. Um, Psalm 8 is an amazing example of the majesty and love of God that I am already hesitant about preaching because it is uh, almost impossible for me to give this psalm true justice because of what it points to and the magnitude of what it points to. So let's read it together. I'm going to be going quite quickly um, through this sermon. So I hope you have your notebook and journal because uh, I'm really believing that you'll just capture some of the wonder and the grace of God through this psalm. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength. Some versions say ordained praise because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or her? And uh, the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings 
and crowned him with the glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I'm just going to get my water. This is an incredible psalm because this is David, and you you can imagine this. David was a real outdoorsy guy, and he's outside. He looks up, as we've all done, and he's looked at this universe and and the stars. And maybe like us, you can see the wisps of the Milky Way, maybe some of the... Uh, shooting stars that we are fortunate to be able to see even in Kelowna. Uh, and he's looked up and, and his response is the same as all our responses. And he says, oh, I am so amazing. I'm so incredible. I'm so significant. I'm so unbelievably magnificent. As I look at these universe, I am just reminded of how amazing I am. He doesn't do that. His first response is, It's like he has no words. In fact, he says two things twice because he's just like, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth is verse 1. And then the very final verse of this passage is exactly how majestic is all your name, is your name in all the earth. He looks up, and that's my first point, the look. He he looks up and he sees the sky and it takes his breath away. And I've got an image here, I think, of, of the universe. I hope these slides, there you go. That's just one of... A plethora of, of images that you can find online. He looks and he doesn't just see sparkling globes of gas and fire and planets. What he actually sees is the glory of God. The power of God. In fact, I would even suggest he sees the clue of the existence of God himself. It takes his breath away. And his response is, there must be a God. There has to be something more than me in all of this. That's his response. And you know what? Whether you are a Christian or not these days, and Christians who are listening here today, these are really important points for you as you talk to people in the community who maybe don't know Jesus. There are people who still, there are many who will look at the universe and must breathe, there has to be more than this as I look at the magnificence of that. And maybe they can't put words to it. But then there's many who disagree. There's many who disagree with the idea that God created the universe. So you scientifical types, listen up. This is where I love how science and Christianity are not at odds. They are intricately entwined. In fact, I would say as a Christian, you don't get science without faith and Christianity and God. So I I, I may be using some arguments. Please listen because this is important. I may use science arguments to try and prove there's a God. I'm not doing that because I see them as opposed. I'm actually showing that there is a massive question mark in the science community over the origin of the universe. There's a scrambling to try and figure out how this came into being. So much so that scientists themselves are questioning the arguments because they don't actually fully meet all the questions. There's a, if you like, a large, hmm, I'm not 100% sure. 
So Stephen Hawking, who perhaps is one of the, the most prominent scientists and, and, and physicists in the world right now, wrote in one of his books, the universe created itself. This is, I'm paraphrasing. The universe created itself. You don't have to believe in God. Why does he feel like he needs to say that? Well, there's many people who would look at the universe and say there is a God, like David. The, pro- the existence of God is proved by the universe itself. And I could choose many, many different arguments to try and present to you this morning. Uh, And some of you would just switch off and you'd be insanely bored. And others of you would love it because that's how you think. But I'm just going to choose one argument. And and it's not a Christian argument. It's a science viewpoint, which is the fine-tuning argument or the fine-tuning of the universe. And basically what it is is this, that there are elements of our universe that are so intricately and minusculely perfect to the millionth, millionth degree, that if one of these elements was slightly off by the slightest amount, then life itself would cease to exist. So let me me show you what a scientist says about this. This is Francis Collins. He's the American physician uh, geneticist noted for his leadership of the human genome project. Because you might listen to me giving these arguments and think, well, yeah, you're just a pastor. You don't know anything. And my wife would agree. In many ways, I know nothing about lots of things. So what I do is I look to people who do know, who are very smart, and and they know what they're talking about. So this is one of these guys. He is, he's one of those guys that I wouldn't have hung out with much at school. I'm just being honest. You know, like he was in his books all the time. This is a guy who knows what he's talking about. So having given him such a marvelous introduction, let's see what Francis Collins says. This, I, this blows my mind. When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, we have this, I believe, Joseph, I hope. When you look from the perspective of a scientist at... A couple more. We got it. It's, there's lots of slides this morning. Keep going. You'll find it. There you go. When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak, nuclear force, etc. They have precise values. If one of these constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. That's phenomenally surprising observation. It seems almost impossible that we're here. And that does make you wonder, gosh, who was setting these constants anyway? Scientists have not been able to figure that out. So Stephen Hawkins would say it's just a, uh, it's just, it's the universe created itself. And then here we've got this scientist going, it's too perfect. It's too perfect. It's like it knew we were coming. (laughs) I love that. See, I I believe wholeheartedly in the Big Bang. I really do. I have no problem believing in the Big Bang. I just believe that God likes Big Bangs. I just believe that God was the one that started, let there be light. Boom. And there was light. In fact, scientists tell us that the universe is still expanding. Now, this is... Philosophy 101 by Glenn, so it's pretty shallow. Science 101, I should say. If it's still expanding, maybe it's because God said, let there be light, but then didn't say stop. Maybe his command at Genesis is still carrying on. Isn't that cool? 
I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. We'll find out one day. So then you've got the whole idea of the origin of life. Remember, this is rooted in David going, there has to be a God, because look at it. The existence of the universe proves that there is a God. So we're already saying, universe itself is showing that there is a grand design. So what about life itself? So this quote comes from a gentleman who's called George Wald, who is a Nobel Peace Prize winning physicist. Okay? Really knows what he's talking about when it comes to physics. Buckle up, because this one just blows my mind. When, have we got this one? When it comes to the origin of life, we have only two possibilities as to how life arose. One is the spontaneous generation arising to uh, to evolution. No God. The other is a supernatural creative act of God. There is no third possibility. Spontaneous generation was scientifically disproved 100 years ago. This leads us scientifically to only one possible conclusion. That life arose as a supernatural creative act of God. I will not accept that philosophically, not scientifically. Philosophically I won't accept that because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible. Spontaneous generation arising to evolution. I am choosing to believe in that which is scientifically impossible, evolution. That's not a Christian. That is an atheist, Nobel Peace Prize winning scientist. I refuse to believe because philosophically, what was the word he said? I don't want to believe in God. He says the only thing that is possible is a supernatural creation of life. Amen. Have a great day. God exists. Ask for forgiveness because it's true. It's real. Universe is shouting out the glory of God. But maybe that's not good enough for you. Maybe a Nobel Peace Prize winning scientist is not good enough. The geneticist is not good enough. And Pastor Glenn, you're definitely not good enough. Okay. So let's just look at the size of the world for a second. We've got a photograph, I believe, a hope of the universe and its different sizes. Um, if we've got that there, I hope. There you go. This is actual photography. No, it's not. This is just because I was, it would be impossible. But if the sun were the size of a penny, the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, would be 560 kilometers away. If our sun was this big, the nearest star to it would be 560 kilometers away, which is roughly Canmore, between Canmore and, and Calgary, uh, uh, by road, I should say. The Milky Way galaxy is 7.5 million miles across. The Milky Way is minuscule in comparison to the universe. So look, you've got the Earth, then you have the solar system, and then if you look very carefully, you can just see, I should have had my TV set up. Uh, you can see the interstellar, and it carries on. And, and Oh, thank you, brilliant. And then... Then you just see the red in the middle of the interstellar neighborhood. And then you've got that in the galaxy, Milky Way. And then you've got the galaxy, the Milky Way, in the local galactic group. And then that local galactic group in the Virgo supercluster. And then that Virgo supercluster is in the local superclusters. And then that local supercluster is in the observable universe. And then my mind melts. Because I have no comprehension of how big that is. I can barely find my way home some days. Never mind, try and get that into my mind. And what does David say? Look at this verse, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your... What? What's the word? 
fingers. Not hand, not arm, not body, fingers. This is small work for God. No wonder God is taking David's breath away. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Surely this causes us to ask a question. How do we approach God? How do we regard God? When we think about the intricacy of the universe and whether you believe in God or not, even though the evidence is overwhelmingly that there is a grand design, if you still want to choose, choose to not, like that scientist, want to believe in God, then you have to still ask the question, how do you regard God, because you cannot ignore a God who literally creates the universe with his fingertips. You cannot treat him like some consultant that you add on to your life when things get difficult. It says in Hebrews 1 that he upholds it all with the power of his word. If he created the universe with his fingers, how do we view God? I've got a beautiful picture of the Helix Nebula. How do we view God? him? Is he an assistant to your life? Is he just a consultant? Is he somebody or the community of faith, something you just add on to the rest of your activity? Because surely, if he could breathe into existence the universe itself, and it'd be small work, as David described, then, then we have to regard him as more as just an assistant and a consultant, somebody we run to when things are going difficult at work. Surely we cannot say, don't call me God, I'll call you. Actually, that would be too much in our culture. It's more like, don't text me, I'll text you. If God is the God of this universe, then he is king. He has to be the center of our life. He has to be the majestic one that David describes. And you know what else the fingertips suggest to me, and I know we have many in the congregation today, is to suggest that God is an artist. He's an artist. You know, every other religious uh, account for creation, any other religion that talks about creation, creation comes out of great battle and strife, whereas creation in the Bible comes out of artistry and fingertips with God. The Bible says that our God is so all-powerful that he made the world like an artist. Just so perfect. And you can find proof of that, not only in the fine-tuning argument, but also in the intricate parts of the world itself. But here's the thing with art. Art always shows the inner character and being of the artist, him or herself. It's always a reflection of, of the artist. And I love what Jonathan Edwards talks about when he talks about God's artistry as shown in creation. Uh, he says that it reflects the character and heart of God himself. So if you want to see the wisdom of God, then look at creation. If you want to see the joy of God, if you want to see the sense of humor of God, if you want to see his power and his attention to detail, then look at creation. And so as we live in this world that is shot through with meaning and purpose and creation and design, how does that result in us day-to-day Christians as living? How do we live in the view of that? Do we live truly believing that if God is all-powerful, then he must be approached as king, not just as an assistant when things get tough, not just as an activity that we add on to all our other activities. That if he is majestic, then surely he is able to handle our life difficulty. That maybe, just maybe, he can sort out 
and be part of the things that I feel are completely impossible. If he is able to place planets with his fingertips and create the universe, then maybe he can actually come alongside some of my concerns and anxieties and I can see answers to those. The scripture talks about casting our cares and anxieties upon him. And so what we often do is we throw it on God and then we trot after them, pick them up, scoop them up because we think that he can't handle it after all and put them back in our pockets and carry them. If God is an artist as shown in creation, can we not live grateful? That that gratefulness and joy will shine out of us. That when somebody has been in your presence, they will leave your presence having been grateful for having met you because you exude enjoyment and excitement and gratefulness. That they're not leaving your presence going, man, I hope I don't bump into them again because they just made me feel miserable about myself. We should be filled with the joy of God because he approached creation himself and we can look and be reminded of how amazing he was. So this results in a question. Number two, the question. So David looks and he's reminded. We look and we are reminded. So now this causes a question in verse four. What is man or woman that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So David's looking at the universe and he's going, how do you care about me? Why are you mindful of me? Our culture, and please listen to this, our culture communicates, educates, and constantly reminds you that you are an accident, that you are um, not created, that you are just a bunch of chemicals thrown together accidentally at the beginning of time. And if you want proof of that, I'm going to come to that in a second. If you want to prove, if you want to prove that that's what our culture believes, I can show you in a second. But let's just assume that it's right, that, that they believe that they are an accident. And, you know, let's assume there is no God. If you're here by accident, where is your significance? Like if I accidentally throw milk on the floor, does the milk suddenly become significant? Well, I suppose you could argue that, yes, if you step into it, it's going to slip and fall. But in and of itself, is it significant? Is it wanted? Is it loved? If you're an accident, do you matter? Because if there is no God, listen, for those of you who may be struggling in your faith, you cannot have it both ways. You can't have evolution, no God, God and creation. You can't have both ways depending on how you feel that day. If there is a God, then you need to see what God says about himself and and be obedient to it. If there is no God, you need to come to terms with the fact that what that is actually saying is you're an accident, you're insignificant, you're not relevant. And you're going, wow, Glenn, that's a really presumptuous thing to say. So what you actually need to do is look at what uh, atheists, people who don't believe in God... Uh, philosophers have said about this historically. This recognition, and I have this quote, this recognition that we are accidents. What does that result in? So this is from Bertrand Russell, a well-known philosopher. And it starts, uh, Joseph, with that is man. Thank you. That is the product of causes, that man is the product of causes that had no prevision, just an accident of the end, that they were achieving. 
that his origin, his growth, his hopes and his fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius, all destined to extinction, everything humans do, in the vast death of the solar system, only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Have a nice day. He's saying there is nothing you do that will make a difference. He's saying there is no significance. You're an accident. And that is truth, he says. Christians often get accused of being very dogmatic. It's pretty dogmatic. These truths, he said, should be safely built. You are going to die a hopeless death. It won't matter. The universe doesn't care about you, yours, or what you do. Live in that. Have fun. Have a wonderful day. That's this side. So David says that you are mindful of me. You care for me. See, we believe as Christians that God created a universe and a God in it that does care. That does care. How do we know that God is interested? How do we know that we're significant? How do we know we have a purpose? How do we know that we're loved? How do we know that we're the absolute antithesis to that belief that Bertrand Russell has just so eloquently placed into our lives? How do we know that the opposite is true? Number three, the visit. The visit. See, David asks the question, what is man, that you are mindful of him? And then in verse 5, he answers. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with the glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So let's just backtrack. He's looking at the universe and he's like, I have no words. You're so majestic. You clearly exist. You clearly exist. This was easy for you. This was small for you. This was art to you. And then he's saying, in the light of that, how is it you care for me? And then he gives us the answer. He gives us the answer. Look at some of these words. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned, glory and honor, dominion. Those are, they're divine words. They're words that you will find in the Bible attributed to God all the time. And he's saying that, that, God, that man is a reflection of the divinity of God. And you find that in Genesis, the Holy Margo Day, the, the, the divine image that God created us in His image. He made us self-aware. He made us precious. He crowned us. He gave us glory. He gave us honor. I'm going to be preaching more about glory in a couple of weeks out of another psalm, but He's made us precious. So... If we live in a world that sees itself as accidental, how do we know that our world and our culture says that you are an accident? How do we know that our culture educates people in, their, uh, in the fact that they are not significant? Because those words will never be expressed. How do you know? Well, you look at the fruit. Uh, I, I have no stats to back this up. But I could safely say, and there may be people in the room who can maybe contradict me, but I'm going to guess they would agree, 
that we live in a culture that, that maybe has never been as depressed, as anxious and as suicidal and self-harming as the one that we do now. Our kids are being killed quickly by an enemy that wants to, as the scripture says, to steal, kill, and destroy. It's very interesting. You track back historically, you'll see there's been three times generationally in the history, of the biblical history of the world, when kids have been killed purposefully. The first one was the Moses generation. They were thrown in the river. The second was the Jesus generation, when Herod sent all the kids to be killed. And the third one is our generation. Never before has there been more young uh, children, babies, unborn, young adults being systematically killed by a culture that tells them that they are worthless, that they have no dignity, they have no identity, they have no self-worth, they have no place, they have no purpose, they have no fulfillment. Why is that? It's because the same culture constantly shouts out, you are an accident. Nobody wants you. See, as Christians, we believe that God has given us self-worth because we were created in His glory, in His image. So what that means as Christians is that, friends, listen to this. Every living, breathing human being, every unborn human being, deserves the dignity that God attributes to them. Now, you might not agree, you might actually be really revolted by what this person is doing, their lifestyle, their choices, their beliefs, their lack of faith, their faith, whatever it might be, but the Bible clearly describes that we as Christians need to respond to them with a Margot Day kind of viewpoint that they have dignity. This is why this afternoon we have the opportunity to show our community that they have dignity and we love them. I will guarantee you that I probably disagree with some of their lifestyles. But when was it that suddenly, if we disagree with somebody, that we have to stop loving them? My kids would be in trouble every day. We have a culture that shouts out, you are worthless. And we have a God that echoes and shines through the universe itself and says, you are precious. You have worth. Now that worth has been broken. Sin entered the world and took that image of God, the worth, the beauty, the perfection in Adam and Eve, and it broke. But I can tell you, you don't have to dig very much in somebody's life to be able to see that. So Jesus didn't come to die because you're worth it. Jesus came to die so that you could be reconciled back to that original image that's now been broken by sin, that we are unable to fix ourselves, but... You see, this is where it gets really special to me. The scripture that says this, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care? That word care literally means visited and moved. Because I can say, I really care about my people in the community. I, you know, I have a heart for my city. I have a heart for... For those that are unloved, I have a heart for the unlovable. I have a heart for those who live on the streets. I have a heart for the the wealthy that don't know Jesus. Oh, but don't ask me to do anything. I'm a bit busy. No, you don't have a heart. You don't care because care means visited and move. 
You see, true care is, is given when you actually take a step towards. And that's what God did for us in Jesus. He said, not only do I give you the universe, not only do I give you all these beautiful things to look at, not only do I give you life and dignity itself, I'll give you my son. I'll move for you. Zechariah said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. The power behind the universe cared enough to come in Jesus. And there's more. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established or ordained praise. Because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Sarah and I were chatting about this verse this morning. She said, are you going to look at this? I said, we will cover it. This is a beautiful and significant verse. How does this verse, out of the mouth of babies and infants, reinforce everything that I've just said? Because it's, it's a bit of a strange thing to say. How can a baby and an infant establish strength or ordain praise? It makes no sense because the babies and infants are probably the, the most uh, weak in our society. So the weakest Actually bringing strength makes no sense on a logical level, but it absolutely makes sense on a divine level. For this reason, how does God choose to show his power and majesty and love? He does it through the lonely. He does it through the weak. He does it through the rejected. He does it through the insignificant. Because if you look through the Old Testament, you'll see time and time again, God using the insignificant to do the significant, the weak to be strong, the powerless to be empowered, Take Gideon. Gideon is cowering inside, frightened, the scripture says, trying to thresh wheat inside a wine press. He's so afraid, and yet moments later, God is calling him mighty man of valor and calling him to a great ministry. God uses the weak, the humble, the meek to inherit the earth. And why does he do that? Because what it's doing is it's pointing towards Jesus Christ himself, dying a horrible, weak death in the eyes of society. He didn't come as this powerful king warrior on a mighty horse. He came weak and meek and humble. And meekness is not a weak word. It's a strong word. It literally means like a warrior horse that's laid down. You wouldn't mess with that horse, but it's at that moment it's meek. It's contained strength. So Jesus came and visited and died the death that you and I deserve because of the sin that we have committed because God in his perfect justice punishes sin but chose to send his son as a visit, as a reflection of his love and his majesty as shown in the universe down to us as mankind and said, believe in him and you too will have eternal life. He secured the ultimate victory over death and then the psalm says this, have you not, you have given him, that's you and me, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So let's just track back. You have the unfathomable universe. Just infinite, that's a better word. You have the infinite universe placed by the fingertips of God that science itself has no answer for. Showing the beauty of his creation and artistry. Showing how much he loves us. Telling us that even though I did all this, I care for you. So much so that I will give you dignity and worth. And I will 
underline all that by sending my son to come visit you and I'm mindful of you and he will die and give himself as a sacrifice so that your sin can be forgiven so you can be back to how I planned you to be. How can we ever question the love of God that he would do that for me so that I can have dominion over life? That I can live life and life more abundantly. And if we need evidence of that, then I wish that Charlene was here for me to honor her so she could hear this. The email I had from Charlene this morning was evidence of having dominion over life. Because her first thing was, praise be to God. What's the first thing she said in the email? Praise be to God. God is good. God is good. Sorry, but you've just been evacuated. And she wouldn't mind me saying this. She struggles to get around. Is that fair to say? She's in a wheelchair. And she's stepping forward because Charlene is a person who has submitted to Christ, recognized his lordship, his divinity, asked for forgiveness, been redeemed, been filled, and she dominates life even in weakness because it's the weak that show us true strength. See, Jesus came as a humble king, and here's what I love. In the same way that perhaps when God said, let there be light, it's still expanding, this morning... That same generation, uh, sorry, Genesis beginning can happen in your life. Let there be light in every aspect of your life. Father, I thank you for these good people. I thank you, Lord, that we can come to you and we can remember that you give us constant reminders of your love and your grace and your beauty and your majesty, all of which points to how much you love us. And Lord, we would be the first to say that there's stuff that goes on in our hearts that we're ashamed of. And yet, Lord Jesus, you still love. You still give your life. And Lord, I pray for every person here that, that, Lord, in some way, that even tonight, maybe when it goes dark and maybe we can see a few stars, Lord, we were reminded that you visited us and you gave your life, that the greatest majesty is shown in the cross. And Lord, I pray that as we come to communion now, Lord, your, your word says that you took bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And you took the cup and in the same manner said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Lord, as we sing as a community and as we take communion together, those who believe, Father, I pray that as we sit and we hold this bread and this juice, that, Lord, we would be again reminded of your intense love for us. And, Father, I pray that for many in this room, maybe it means that we come and we say sorry. Forgive us, Lord, for just placing you as an, as an add-on to our life. 
as a consultant when things get difficult. Lord, I pray that we would be a community where you are center, that you are king, that you are everything, that we wouldn't just play lip service to caring, but Lord, we would move and we would visit all in your name, Jesus. Forgive us, Lord, for our self-centeredness. And Lord, I pray that as we take this bread and this juice, that Lord, that you would speak to us really clearly about what you would have us do next. Holy Spirit, we're so thankful. You're so kind. You're so gentle. And Lord, I pray that you would just woo us into your presence now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So we do have the bread and the juice available for communion. And so what I want to encourage you to do is Josh and the team leaders in 